0: Welcome to From City to the World. I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, the president of City College of New York. From City to the World is a show about how the work that we're doing at City College matters to people across the city and throughout the world. We'll discuss the practical application of our research in solving real-world issues like poverty, homelessness, and social and economic disparities of every kind. Today, the 2020 presidential election is upon us, and it has already been one of the most untraditionally contentious elections in modern history. Voter suppression, repeated attacks designed to undermine the public's confidence in voting by mail, computerized voting machines that cannot provide paper audits, and efforts to undercut the U.S. postal system all form a backdrop that raises significant anxiety around the question of whether these elections will be free or fair. On public stages, the president has issued calls to his supporters that are either veiled or explicit instructions to mobilize in ways that could intimidate or repress full participation. And of course, many of us are worried about what will happen if his armed supporters reject the result of the vote. And naturally, the COVID-19 pandemic colors every aspect of this exercise. The president's uh, continued efforts to downplay the severity of the outbreak or even the existence of of the pandemic um, has created a public health crisis. Um, Efforts to keep people safe during the elections have also become politicized um, so that voting by mail or voting early or via technology have been presented as unnecessary or worse, part of conspiracy to steal or cheat in the elections. And so a discussion of how we safeguard the vote under these extraordinary conditions and how we gather the information to dispel some of the more outlandish conspiracy theories making the rounds is increasingly important. So given both the singular importance of these elections and the wealth of disinformation currently making the rounds and the politicization of so much of what should be technical questions of how best to safeguard the vote, we're turning today our attention to questions of several important elements of our electoral system, the ways in which They may be vulnerable, and what we can do as citizens to ensure that our vote is counted and the general count is accurate. So on the first half of today's show, we'll be speaking with CCNY Professor Rosario DiNaro, whose research focuses on cryptography and network security. On the second half of the show, Jonathan Simon, who will join us, uh, he's the author of Code Red, computerized elections and the war on American democracy. Uh, Mr. Simon says that we should be concerned about this election because computerized voting machines are not reliable without paper audits, and we'll turn to him um, in the second half of the show. For now, let me tell you a little bit more about our first guest, Professor Rosario Gennaro. Professor Gennaro received his PhD from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 1996. He was a researcher at IBM TJ Watson Research Center before joining City College in the summer of 2012. His most recent work addresses the security of the cloud computing infrastructure, the issues of privacy and anonymity in electronic communications, and proactive security to minimize the effects of system break-ins. And in fact, he was with us uh, about two years ago to talk about, you know, more about cyber security. He serves currently as the director of the Center for Algorithms and Interactive Scientific Software at CAISS at City College of New York. Um, And because this is his second appearance on the show, I'll say to Professor Gennaro, welcome back to From City to the World. Thank you. Um, So I want to, you know, first of all, thank you for being uh, so willing to share your expertise with us. And let me just jump right into what I know is an area of immediate concern for you. Just the other day, um, waking up and checking my Google feed, I noticed that Google is promoting a new application that helps with contract tracing and inviting people who see the advertisement to opt in and and install this application on their phone. And so let's start out by you just describing to our listeners how this app is supposed to work, what services it provides.
1: Sure. So the... Contact tracing apps that is being deployed currently all over the states is based on a framework that Google and Apple together uh, developed. And it's remarkable, first of all, that Google and Apple have come together to do this. And I think that speaks to their interest in helping with the pandemic situation. And what this technology does, it's already a technology that is used in many iPhones, with their Find My Phone technology that is on those phones. Basically, your phone is turned into a beacon of random numbers. Your phone constantly transmits random numbers through the Bluetooth mechanism. And if you happen to be the vicinity of another phone, the two phones record each other's numbers. So if I were next to you and we both were using this app, I would record the random numbers broadcasted by your phone and you would record the random numbers per custom on my phone. Later, if I were to test positive, state health authorities would allow me to upload my random numbers into a statewide server, which then your phone would periodically check. And if it sees on this server random numbers that have been recorded in the last 14 days, you would know, in the last 14 days, you were near somebody who eventually tested positive, and so they would give you a notification of potential exposure. This design was chosen mostly for its intrinsic privacy, meaning there is no actual identifiable information associated with these numbers that are being broadcasted, so it seems to be completely anonymous, although even that is subject to the, the debate right now. And it allows you to somehow detect in a completely decentralized fashion if you've been near somebody who have, who has tested positive.
0: I see. But you've also discovered a way in which this seemingly innocuous altruistic app can create vulnerabilities in the electoral system. Can you so, can you talk about yeah. what you discovered?
1: Sure. So first of all, one thing that was noted almost immediately that by many
0: experts in
1: cryptography and network security was that because of this focus on privacy and anonymity of the system, it was very easy to create what we cryptographers call replay attacks. So it's very possible for me to record somebody else's numbers so that I'm picking up because I'm near them and send them out somewhere else and take these numbers and broadcast them on, in a different locale where that person has never been. And if that person were to test positive, then I have somehow disseminated random numbers all over the place, and a lot of people will end up being notified, even if in reality they were not in, uh, in, in the vicinity of a positive person. Until this summer, people were talking about this replay attacks as somehow almost like a theoretical curiosity. People thought that it could be used for by a business to somehow create a fake outbreak at a competing business and shutting it down for a few days and getting some competitive advantage. What we noticed was, well, you can actually launch some sort of almost terrorist attack on the days leading to the election and notify send this mass fake notifications, which, for the way, you can really geographically target to areas of a particular political leaning, and somehow entice people to stay home and not go to the polls to vote, because well, if you've been notified that you've been exposed, the first thing you have to do is quarantine, and then get tested. So if you were to receive this the day before or the morning of election day, you would be stuck at home, and you know, if you follow the instructions, right, you would be stuck at home and you would maybe go get tested. But definitely voting would not be in your on your radar of things to do on that day after being notified of a potential dead, deadly exposure. Right. So we sort of say, look, these replay attacks are pretty serious because there are situations in which they can be deployed to dangerous political and societal consequences.
0: I understand you've made some efforts to reach out to, you know, both people at the companies that have developed these applications and elected officials. Can you talk a little bit about how receptive they were to discussing what you've discovered and how to remediate the vulnerabilities?
1: Sure. So the the, the experience has been, to say the least, frustrating. Google and Apple were Somehow dismiss this as a again as a theoretical curiosity as something that yes could potentially happen, but it would require too much investment and too much effort to somehow deploy this in such large scale to actually flip the election. And somehow that is, you know has been a it's it's an argument that we have sort of decided not to really accept face value. Because, you know, you need to think about who might be interested in attacking a U.S. election. If it is a nation state, then they would have enough resources to actually mount this attack in large scale. So we have been somehow a little more successful in talking to some government authorities about this. There's been some investigation into it. But one thing that is really kind of keeping this on the low alert is that the apps have not been widely adopted. And so nobody sees this as a particular concrete danger right now because there has been like a 2%, 3% adoption rate in in the United States. And therefore, you wouldn't be reaching a large enough section of the population. And therefore, people who work on body suppression, so for example, we were talking to the ACLU, they're really... Busy putting out real fire connected to uh, voter suppression, and they f- they think of this as a speculative uh, and not concrete attack, which is somehow correct as of maybe today. But this is a technology that, as you said, is being in- promoted heavily, and therefore adoption could ramp up pretty quickly from now to election day, and we would be able to we wouldn't be able to prevent that if adoption rates were to get all of a sudden and maybe because there is a spike in cases and people get scared and they immediately go and download the app to stop uh, this potential vulnerability from being exploited. So the, the experience has been kind of difficult because as of today, this is probably not a very attractive target to implement voter suppression because of the low adoption rate. But there is this potential of being used, and that somehow, if it's not concrete, if it's not happening today, people don't seem to be really taking it seriously, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, and and I think the reason why it popped up on my Google feed uh, today is that New York State has just decided to adopt and promote this app. You know, one of the things we're seeing across the country is it feels like policymakers are moving away from the idea that you can totally prevent COVID-19 from coming into your state. And so there's a much stronger emphasis on testing and contact tracing, which will mean, I think, that the pressure to adopt an app or something like this that will help with contact tracing is going to be increasing. and so.
1: No, I, I think that opens such a different, and I'm, I want to stay focused on the election, but it opens a different conversation, which is incredible urgency to do contract tracing. And our state departments, our health departments are underfunded, and they're turning to technology in the hope that that would be some sort of magic bullet to help them. And they're Going for the most available, you know, Google and Apple are presenting something that is easily adopted, doesn't require a large investment on, in terms of technology from the from the health department, and therefore it looks a bit like a very attractive solution. Unfortunately, it has these vulnerabilities. The privacy and anonymity guarantees—they seem to be actually exaggerated. There have been a lot of papers coming out on how you can actually track users, regardless of the the anonymity that they try to build into the system. And the latest actually news from a couple of days ago is that finally people are doing large-scale studies and the Bluetooth signal seems to be so noisy that at the end it doesn't really give a reliable indication of exposure when therefore it doesn't seem to be even that effective. So there's been a rush to adopt this technology just because of the urgency of the situation, but it seems like the technology is weak in many ways, unfortunately.
0: I was going to ask you about whether there were ways to close the vulnerabilities in, in this technology, but let me ask you a, a broader question that I think draws on sort of more general computer science knowledge. I mean, is are you saying that you think technological solutions are likely inherently to be flawed in some way and we should no. look at... no.
1: No, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm saying that contact tracing, manual contact tracing is the gold standard, and we should try to emulate that. What I'm saying is that the choices that were made for this particular technology, they were dictated essentially by a desire to get high adoption. And when they made those decisions, they said, what is going to prevent people from adopting this? One, if they're a fear of being tracked, a fear of government spying on them. So let's make it as private as possible. Two, is this going to drain the battery of their device? So let's make it as lightweight as possible. Uh, Three, is it going to eat their data plan? So let's try to send as fewer bytes as possible. So it was in the hope of getting this technology as as widely adopted, a goal in which, by the way, they failed because... The technology is not being adopted anyway. The users are not buying into it. They built a system that, because of all these compromises, seemed to not reach what they wanted to do. So in terms both of the effectiveness, privacy, and security. So yes, there is space here for a technological solution but it doesn't seem to be this one. That's what what I'm saying. And I think it it has to be, again, we did this on, they did this on a very tight schedule. There was an urgency back in the spring to put something out there. And maybe as a first iteration, this would have been a a good first step. Um, What we need to do is keep working on this technology to, improve it and to address why it's so noisy that maybe the notification are not really real notification. Why uh, how can we take care of this replay attack? So th- there are things that we can do and we can hopefully keep working maybe for the next pandemic, but there seem to be not enough awareness and in particular Google and Apple particular, they seem to be very defensive around this product. So it's very hard to engage on a process of iterating the design to bring it to somehow uh, closer to the gold standard of manual country trading.
0: I mean, you you said there's only been a kind of 2% adoption of this app, but let's play this out a little bit because some states are just now picking it up and pushing adoption. So let's say it reaches a level where exploiting the vulnerabilities in the app is a kind of useful object of somebody's uh, attention. It may not be this election. It may be that we're right. still doing this a year from now. Are there ways that, that um, users of the apps or, or, or voters can correct for the possibility that somebody uh, is is exploiting the app in this way? Well,
1: okay. So first of all, let me tell you, this is not a true It's true that we have a 2% adoption rate across the country, but one question that I've been actually investigating in the last few days is to try to figure out if there is pockets of eye adoption.
0: Um, and yeah, for instance, early adopter, correct?
1: Right. So p- places where there is actually a high ad- adoption rate. And one place I, I was talking to a colleague of mine in a Midwest campus that has reopened a very large state university in the Midwest. They are using this app and they bundle the, with the app that gives you access to the buildings on campus. So Mm -hmm. I believe that basically everybody on campus is using the app because they need to use the app to get into the building. And so they bundle them together. So here you have a very large state university. It's not a swing state, thankfully, but... Could have been. And it, here you could go and very easily create a large scale fake notification attack on the entire campus population because everybody, basically everybody's using it. So those are those are real issues. They're not just, you know, maybe next time. Right now, right now, this on this election cycle, this could potentially happen. What users can do on this particular technology, it's hard to say, right? Except to, on, first of all, vote early if you can. If you vote early and somebody's targeting election day for this attack, you're voted early. You're voted by mail, you know, one of the two. So that one, definitely one way in which you can somehow mitigate your personal risk, right? The other one is okay, you get a notification on the day of election. This is actually something that's Somebody suggested to me, maybe on on that particular day, you don't want to take it that seriously. Maybe you go vote anyway. Put your mask on. uh, Make sure that you stay six feet away from people, you know, and go vote and then go back home. I would prefer to say go vote early if you can, and this way you remove yourself from the window of opportunity. So those that would be my my main recommendation because otherwise on your end there's nothing to do you you'll you'll get this notification and you, there's nothing you can do on no settings on the app that you can do except turning it off that uh, allows you to mitigate this risk.
0: It sounds like whatever the particular vulnerabilities of this this app might be, you know, very often when people are developing new products, they develop variations on the same framework, and you can imagine that there's a kind of attractive foundation for contact tracing in the communication, you know, Bluetooth communication between devices. So I guess the the sort of vulnerabilities that you're you've talked about in relationship to this specific app seem to me available, at least to any kind of application that would rely on the proximity of two phones connecting yeah. with one another. And so I guess I want to say... Are there ways on the development side to mitigate that danger, or are there entirely other avenues of research in in the field of contact tracing that 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 don't partake of this this same kind of uh, right. vulnerability so um, there are several ways to
1: sort of approach this the first thing is the the Bluetooth communication doesn't have to be unidirectional. Right now it's unidirectional. My phone broadcasts and your phone picks it up. One thing that you could do is the two phones somehow perform a a handshake in which they both detect that the other phone is nearby and they sort of say, hey, hi. They talk to each other. They exchange a couple of messages. This would make the replay attack much, much harder because if I take your initial message and broadcast it in Georgia, um, then I, when the Georgia phones talk back to me and they say, prove that you're really here next to me, I wouldn't be able to do it anymore. So, mm-hmm. first of all, the, the the first, and I believe they didn't go that way because increased communication flaw was going to be draining on their back. I, this is speculation, but I believe that that was one of the reasons—the battery drainage of having this constant broadcasting being interactive, right in the unidirectional. So that was that, That's definitely one way. Another way is that, again, for privacy reasons, these apps were completely forbidden for from accessing location data, because they thought if we give this app this app location data access they will be, people will be afraid that the apps can be used to spy on them. But the reality is that the app can use location data without reporting the location data. So you can sort of make this random number specific to the location to where you are and somehow that would also mitigate the possibility of replay attacks. Again, this was, I believe, a purely uh, political choice in terms to drive up adoptions. And by the way, this is not the only technology available out there. France and Israel have used different technologies, a more centralized design that somehow mimics uh, better the manual content tracing solution. So it's not like this is the only technology out there. There are other approaches, and, so, and they're less exposed to
0: this kind of vulnerabilities? I guess the bottom line is we're in an area where the trade-offs are going to be inherent in the sorts of choices we make. You know, Trade-offs between the protection that this app may give you, if it's used correctly, and the, the need to go and vote in a, a, a tremendously important uh, election. Or the trade-offs between draining your battery or protecting elements of privacy and and providing a full picture of the dangers of encountering the virus as you move through our society. And I I guess we're at a point right now where we're waiting for the technology to mitigate some of those trade-offs, but we're in election season and we have to do what we can do in our choices of how we navigate the election to mitigate these trade-offs. Now I'd like to invite into the conversation uh, Jonathan Simon. Uh, Mr. Simon was the executive director of Election Defense Alliance from 2006 to 2016. He is also the author of Code Red, Computerized Elections and the War on American Democracy. He says that since 2002, when the U.S. started using computerized voting machines, exit polls have not matched election results. And he'll give us some examples of electoral irregularities and tell us what to look for in this election, Mr. Simon, thank you for being here and welcome to from city to the world.
2: Thanks, Vince. Thanks for having me. Uh, really a
0: pleasure. So let's dive right into the evidence that you gather in Code Red, the evidence about inaccuracies of computerized voting. I gather it has a lot to do with the relationship between exit polls, which which taught which were in which people who have just voted say how they voted and how the eventual results are recorded and, and acted upon. But can Can you elaborate a little bit on what you saw and what it it led you to think?
2: Sure. I mean, Code Red basically distills almost 20 years of uh, forensic analysis, uh, statistical forensics, meaning uh, looking at baselines, uh, which could be exit polls. They could be tracking polls. They could be hand counts. They could be historical patterns. Whatever kind of statistical and numerical evidence we can get, and the need for that arose because the actual vote-counting system, once it became fully computerized, uh, also became essentially fully unobservable. It is a system designed for concealment, And uh, it basically withholds all what you would call its best evidence, memory cards that go into the computers, the code that's on those memory cards, uh, voter-marked ballots that are scanned. All of that is essentially off-limits to inspection, not just by the ordinary citizen, but but by candidates and even by election administrators. It's all corporate and proprietary. Without any of that evidence, the system uh, of vote counting in, in the U.S., basically, Morphed gradually and then somewhat more rapidly with the passage of the Help America Vote Act in 2002 um, into a very faith based system. And computers would spit out the numbers, and ours was not to question why. And so, what we do, the ones who do question why or what or how, try to look at other indicators. And exit polls are one of the stronger indicators. But, you know, we, we see disparities between. Exit polls and vote counts, the question arises well, you know, is there something wrong with the exit poll? And on the other hand, is there something wrong with the vote count? What makes the exit poll analysis or any of the kind of forensic analysis we perform more powerful and more probative is when we look at patterns, Uh, not just the single exit poll being off or even a set of exit polls being off, but comparative disparity. So, for instance, I'll give you, for example, in the 2016 election, the national exit poll was essentially spot on. It was it was within the margin of error, uh, and that was a sample taken around the nation to represent the national popular vote and the national electorate. But the exit polls in the critical swing states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, Ohio. They were well beyond the margin of error. They were all off. They were all off in the same direction. And they were all off in the direction that, you know, would have favored uh, Hillary Clinton if the exit polls had been accurate. She would have been our president. And it, it was the locus of these disparities that really raised the red flags, like, you know, competitive elections of national significance, critical elections, crucial battlegrounds. They're off but the baseline of the national exit poll was not off. And that replicated patterns we've seen uh, in, uh, we saw in 2004 to some extent, and we saw other types of similar, it's a lot to go into, but similar kinds of patterns where we were actually able to validate our baselines, look at the exit polls, compare them to census data, compare them to Pew data and Michigan data. These are, you know, uh, longitudinal studies of the electorate, and, ascertained that they represented the electorate very well, and that there was this, what we, I coined the term back in 2004, a big red shift where the vote counts uh, came out to the right of what was shown in the exit polls and in the tracking polls, pre-election polls, in hand counts, and basically every other measure other than computerized uh, vote counting. So this this is probative evidence. It's not proof, but it certainly indicates that there is, uh, there's a lot of smoke and you'd want to investigate and find out if there's a fire because, well, what's riding on it is basically our national direction.
0: Could you talk a little bit about the different ways that a computer system can be made vulnerable by bad actors? I want to tag another question onto that one because you said something very interesting in your first response. You talked about how all of the hard evidence of how people voted uh, wasn't available for checking. And I'm, I'm wondering whether that, I mean, is that simply to protect proprietary software? Or, I mean, is there some kind of technological reason why that needs not to be available to people? Is it political? Is it business politics?
2: Yeah, I think you're honing in on it there at the at the, at the end. I, I mean, it's absolutely not necessary from you know from a, a public policy standpoint. These you could have open source, you could have examination of code, you could have examination of memory card. Vendors of voting equipment, it's not a tremendous high-profit industry. It's not like the pharmaceutical industry where you have to sort of pay them back for, you know, decades of research by giving them these extremely lucrative patents. Uh, this could be a public trust. This does not have to be privatized. We made the choice to have it privatized, and our jurisprudence has veered consistently to the side of favoring corporations over people. And part of that is keeping this... Proprietary and out of the public eye. Actually, proprietary and even election administrators are not privy to it and they will complain about that occasionally. You know, this is, yeah, this is essentially a political decision more than an economic one and it results in a system that is, as I said, you know, pretty much designed for concealment and very effective in concealing itself. So, what that leads to are vulnerabilities, and the vulnerabilities get talked about a fair amount. It's funny, in the in the run-up to an election, it's always okay to talk about, you know, will your vote be counted? We, we've seen that over and over again. It's in the aftermath of the election, when there's forensic evidence that votes were not counted accurately as cast, that the the sort of wall of silence descends, and it becomes a third rail that can't be touched. They're vulnerable to hackers. They're vulnerable to people coming in. I mean, the security, level of security on these systems is, you know, truly orders of magnitude below that which you might find at the IMF or the Pentagon or the State Department and, or big major corporations for that matter, Visa, MasterCard. And we've seen that those have been hacked. So it, there's virtually nothing standing in front of a hacker um, that was determined to get in, and especially if they were a state-affiliated hacker with a lot of resources. So it's very open to hacking, but actually more troubling than that, in in my view, is, is that it's open to uh, programming, malicious programming, by insiders with direct access. So you don't even have to penetrate. They don't have to be connected to the internet, for instance, for a hacker, you know, that would be probably necessary for a hacker to come in and mess with the system, as the Russians have been, you know, alleged to have done. It can be somebody working at one of the vendors. And if you think about it, I mean, the people who have the direct access, I mean, they're not people who have the highest level of government security clearance. As a matter of fact, one of the major vendors, uh, the person in charge of programming was a, was an ex-felon who was uh, accused of embezzlement and fraud. So, you know, these are characters that have access to this incredibly high-stakes stream of information on which so much depends. They can be bought. They can be intimidated. It is not hard to imagine getting inside this system without having to hack into it and suborning somebody who works directly with the system to alter programming on a memory card. And let me just give a quick thumbnail of that. A memory card that goes into an optical scanner that, that scans your ballot uh, that, you've, that you've filled out has somewhere between 500 and 700,000 lines of code on it. You can alter two or three lines out of those 500,000 lines of code and offset the zero counters on that memory card so that, for instance, Hillary Clinton's count might start at minus 100 and Donald Trump's count might start at plus 100. First, Ballot comes in for Hillary Clinton. It's now minus 99. First ballot comes in for Donald Trump. It's, it's recorded as plus 101. If 500 people came into that precinct and voted uh, for Hillary Clinton and 500 came in, voted for Donald Trump, at the end of the day, You'd have 600 votes for Trump, 400 votes for Clinton. That equals 1,000 votes. That equals the number of votes, voters who came into the precinct. It'll, it'll square uh, with the poll tapes. It'll square with the poll books. And you've just shifted uh, a net of 200 votes, CDQ. So, I mean, that's the simplest imaginable kind of rig. There, there are others that are imaginable, where you could shift every end to vote, or you could do a real-time rig, which we suspect has been done, called the man-in-the-middle attack, where you intercept the data between the local precinct computer and the county or state tabulators, alter it, put it back into the system, make it square up between the county, state, and precincts. This is not hard, and, you know, it's not super sophisticated stuff, so it's really that vulnerable. I mean, it's, it's, I call it a piece of red meat sitting out in a, in a yard on the ground, unfenced yard, and you just have to imagine the hungry dogs coming after that meat.
0: I want to play around with something here. I mean, it, it seems to me that if the vulnerability was primarily to hackers, then you might expect to see disparities between exit polls and final count taking place as you described in 2016 in the places where one or another party needed it most in really close or really vital swing states and it seems to me if you know on the other hand the the vulnerabilities were sort of baked into the programming of the of of the of the voter machine and it somehow came from the inside you'd expect to see a closer correlation between irregularities and distribution networks of voting machines. And so I wonder, as you've looked at this data, is there a pattern, you know, beyond what you saw in 2016, where it's Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, is there a more robust pattern over time that gives us a sense of where and how we think these machines are being manipulated?
2: Yeah look the fog of war has nothing on the fog of us elections it this is really really tricky because us elections are you know notoriously decentralized so they're anything but you know sort of run from the top and so you basically have a patchwork of of really uh, hundreds of separate election systems because it goes down to the county level. As a matter of fact, if you you want to think about it that way, thousands. You've got over 3,000 counties, uh, and many of them are basically running their own show. And the equipment, it's distributed in such a way that, you know, a a given state might have all the same vendor for their equipment. Another state might have three different vendors supplying their equipment. It might be optical scanners plus uh, ballot marking devices or touchscreens. Um, so it's, it's very mosaic and very patchwork. And yeah, my colleagues and I have, uh, you know, striven over the years to try to get a bead on all this. Um, it's, it's something of a cottage industry. It's, You know, it's it's not government-funded or anything like that. So we we have limited capacities. Um, And we've seen both, actually. We've seen a a fairly consistent, if not pervasive, pattern where the more an an election carries with it national significance, the more it will be of interest to a partisan operative, a Karl Rove or somebody of that uh, ilk, the more likely it is to exhibit these red shifts and, and disparities from our baselines. Uh, but the correlation is not perfect. And when you also find uh that there's a certain amount of harder to explain shifting in states that don't seem to matter or places or contests that don't seem to matter. For instance, again, in 2016, we saw a significant redshift in Utah. And obviously, Utah was not a battleground state. So the question became, what's going on there? I mean, is this just noise in the system? Uh, Was it a problem with exit polls in in Utah? Uh, Is it indicative of the fact that exit polls in general can't be trusted? I mean, these are all important questions to ask. Um, Or was it a form of padding? I mean, did Donald Trump... Uh, his campaign go into that election knowing that it was going to get clobbered in the popular vote. It probably did. Remember, they had Cambridge Analytica working for them, and they had some very, very big data. So they probably had a pretty good idea they were going to get clobbered, and the question then becomes, how much can you afford to be clobbered if you're going to have very narrow and potentially suspect victories in four or five states can you afford to get clobbered by five or six or seven million votes in the popular vote without emboldening your opponent, uh, in this case it would have been Clinton, uh, to challenge those very narrow victories? And, you know, if you look at the 2000 election, when Al Gore won the popular vote by 5, 500,000 votes approximately, but he lost Florida by 537 votes, one of the things that gave him the impetus and the support to challenge that all the way, uh, unsuccessfully, but challenge it all the way up to the Supreme Court, was the fact that he had won the popular vote. Then you look at the election of 2004, where Kerry ostensibly at least lost the popular vote by 3 million votes, but there were all these irregularities in Ohio. I mean, it was just screaming, you know, waving red flags. But if Kerry had contested that, think of the position that he would have been. I mean, to begin with, you're a sore loser. But you're a sore loser who just got defeated by three million votes by the people of the country. You don't have any legs to stand on, which is one of the explanations for why Kerry, who later in interviews 10 years later acknowledged that he very strongly suspected that election was stolen in Ohio and elsewhere, but especially in Ohio, was stolen from him, why he did not Contest it. Why he conceded so quickly? Um, So when you look at, you know, sometimes you got to look at it through a couple of different lenses. Yeah, you want to steal those swing states or win them, um, but you also have to look at ancillary uh features such as what the popular vote total so there could be popular vote padding uh there may have been popular vote padding in 2004 to increase Bush's margin and there may have been popular vote uh padding in 2016 to reduce Trump's loss we don't know i mean this is i will be the first to say this is very speculative um, you know, Professor Plum in the pantry with the pipe. There are many things we don't know. What we do know is that there are very strong signals that these counts are consistently not in tune with basically every other measure we can take of the electorate, whether it's opinion polls or exit polls or hand counts or whatever happened, you know, whatever we can find. Um, there's this consistent aspect of red-shifting in the direction of the Republican candidates, uh, or the candidate that, from a Republican strategic standpoint, right-wing strategic standpoint, you'd rather be running against or see run, see win, uh, let's say, in a primary election. Um, it's just a lot of it. It's sort of like a Puntalist painting, and you see all these data spots, and the question becomes, you know, how are they connected? And you know, more importantly, we're not looking backwards. We're not going to say, well, Bush shouldn't have been president, so we're going to turn back the clock to 2004 or whatever, or Trump, for that matter. I mean, it is what it is. This is water under the bridge. What we want to know is, you know, how to make a system going forward that is not this vulnerable and that can regain the trust of the public, because one of the crises right now going into the 2020 election is the electoral process as we essentially predicted has lost the public trust, and that's what opens it up to the kind of shenanigans that donald trump is is, is broadcasting he's going to pull
0: let's just talk about this question about uh, you know looking forward what is the fix for whatever vulnerabilities exist in computerized voting systems
2: in terms of advocating, we've been advocating for uh, close on twenty years for a Process of public, observable vote counting. Now, what that boils down to is either hand counting of paper ballots, and, you know, voter marked, hand marked paper ballots, where a voter is able. There's some uh, exceptions for disabled voters, but counting them observably in public with with teams of counters, and yes, it'll take a little time and require a little bit of effort, um, at least for the federal races, and uh, potentially the federal and statewide races. Now, any given ballot has either one, two, or three federal races on it. So doing a a hand count of those races is very, very similar to what they're now doing in uh, the Netherlands, Norway. Ireland, Germany, uh, where they have a parliamentary system, and there's one or two races on a given national election ballot, uh, and they hand-count them in New Zealand, for that matter, which, you know, just uh, returned uh, Ardern to, um, to, to office. Um, it's quite interesting that the co- countries that moved away from computerized uh, vote counting, the ones I just mentioned, have been especially impervious to this wave of right-wing populism that has engulfed Hungary, Brazil, the United States, and other countries that count by computer. Again, that could be mere coincidence, but it lines up. It's a pretty strong correlation. So that's what we'd like to see, recognizing that it's a hard sell. We're a country that wants everything very quick and generally pretty easy. I mean, we may be learning our lesson now, but uh, that's been the mindset. One sort of uh, partial concession to that to that idea of public observable counting would be uh, a serious, robust, and mandatory uh, auditing process, in which you know, and I, I could hear any purists who are listening groan um, because you know they, they feel that, that 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 that's a half a loaf and it's not good enough, but uh, a good. A uh, risk-limiting audit, and I proposed an alternative to the risk-limiting audit a uh, protocol that would be easier to execute on, you know, in the wilds of election night. Um, this would also uh, bring a great deal of security. What will probably not bring security is more encryption and more... Um, sophistication of technology. You probably could button up a system against hackers if you really, really worked at it. But voting is very different from, let's say, a bank account, because we insist that it be anonymous. And when you don't have tags on the objects that you're trying to count, and you can't refer them back and correlate them with individuals who did the casting and can do the checking, it becomes very, very difficult to maintain the the security of a system like that, much more difficult than, let's say, with an ATM, you know, at a, at, a, at a bank branch. I don't suspect that we're up to it. You might be able to keep the hackers out. You really can't do anything to keep the insiders from screwing up a system like that. Somebody has the keys to the house. And, you know, if you go around looking at all the Windows of the Electoral House to see if the Russians have broken in, uh, smashed some glass, uh, but are ignoring the people at ESNs and uh, One Time Diebold Dominion, these voting uh, vendors, their various satellites, who I have to say have a very strong partisan pedigree, and very strong affiliations with the right wing. You know, and I say that not from a place of partisanship, although you know it, I freely confess my partisanship, but. Just as an objective observer, you can do the research, and they are strongly affiliated. there's very, very little you can do to stop uh, the design and implementation, execution distribution of that system along that pipeline um, from altering the way it 's a pretty simple process the counting of votes and as I tried to point out before, you know it 's a pretty simple process. Uh, as well to alter it. So we really want to see public observable road counting, not this uh, concealed computerized process. And uh, quite a bit of the rest of the world, you know, democracies, Netherlands, Norway, New Zealand, Germany, you know, Ireland, they figured it out and they moved away from what had been a, you know, a strong movement towards computerization. And they said, wait, we can't do this. You know, we're vulnerable to the Russians. We're vulnerable to insiders. This is a crazy way to uh, decide, you know, what our what our country is going to be about. A- at one time, the model that was acceptable in our country was the, was the swinging pendulum. Uh, you could govern today or govern tomorrow, but not both. And then, you know, we, with the advent of Gingrich and Rove and the concept of perpetual rule, you know, the stakes really changed and it it really became, uh, it's it's led to this place where it's now existential. Trump has its own very particular reasons for making it existential. But uh, even if you take Trump out of the equation, it's been that way. It's been becoming more and more that way that it's really ends justify the means. This is a huge, huge high stakes prize. The ethics of the Actors involved are, you know, we can see for ourselves are are not particularly high. And the vulnerabilities are are absolutely glaring. So it should not surprise us to, you know, to see uh, that those vulnerabilities are exploited. In fact, uh, the problem is that, you know, some of that exploitation takes place visibly, um, which is to say, voter suppression. I mean, you can look out there; you can see the ten-hour lines. Uh, this is visible. This is an obvious thumb on the scale. Uh, it's designed to strip the electorate um, down to, you know, down to a manageable or we would say, riggable size. Um, And, uh, you know, that's visible. But then what's going on where you can't see it, if they're going to go to the lengths of doing some of these extremely cynical uh, schemes to, to enable a minority to continue holding power, that becomes the imperative to, you know, once it gets to a certain point, and unfortunately that's the way totalitarian democracies tend to break down Uh, that if you're a minority and you're trying to you know do an end run around the rules or around the rule of law around majority rule and elections uh, you have to keep using more and more extracurricular force to maintain your edge and that's basically the process we're seeing unfold now and it it gets very very far away from the swinging pendulum or from any sense uh, of political fair play the whole system begins to break down, trust begins to break down, dialogue begins to break down. And, you know, Trump, in many ways, I mean, he's obviously poured fuel on the fire. But in many ways, he's, 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 he's riding a wave uh, that was set in motion probably about 20 years ago. And a big part of that has been the computerization of our elections.
0: Thank you so much for that. We're, I mean, there's so much to talk about. And we are, for this program, out of time, I'm afraid. I'd, I'd like to thank you at home for listening to From City to the World, and really give a special thanks to our two guests, City College Professor Rosario Tinaro, whose research focuses on network security, and spoke to us today about the relationship between potential vulnerabilities in contact tracing applications in our electoral system. And you've been listening more recently to Jonathan Simon, who's the author of Code Red, Computerized Elections and the War on American Democracy. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Both of you for spending time with us today. Really interesting conversation. I'm grateful to you both.
2: Thanks so much. It's yeah. been great.
0: Really, really glad to have you here. The show is produced by Angela Hardin. And yours truly, Vince Boudreau. And I'm your host, Vince Boudreau, president of the City College of New York. You've been listening to from City to the World. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>